Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s, and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives, also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By Retro Cirque on YouTube, home to the off-duty mind players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in Retro Cirque, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Beth Campbell, Mr. Cheeseball, Joss Hoskinson, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Meredith Morrissey, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Before we start the show... I feel the need to issue the following disclaimer to those out there who have been following a certain TV classic for the past 60 years and counting. I don't think it's necessary to go over how vastly popular the series Doctor Who was from its origins in 1963 to its current incarnation, and to say anything against it would probably result in my risking the wrath of Whovians the world over, who would probably beat me up so senselessly that I'd walk around all wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey. What I will say, though, is that what little of it I've seen is very entertaining. But, I want to warn you, ladies, gentle demons, and Whovians out there right now, that my knowledge of the show is rudimentary at best, next to nothing at worst, and far too vast to sum up in a single podcast episode. Chances are, I will miss a detail or two about the show's history almost entirely on purpose since, again, the show is six decades old, and there's a lot of ground to cover. So I don't want to hear anything about how I forgot this detail or how I forgot to mention that detail because I know the show has a very dedicated fan base, but also a very lengthy history. And because the show itself is actually going to be largely ornamental to the story that we're going to be telling today. You know how I feel around here about getting information right, I just didn't want you to think I was going to be lazy. Anyway, with all that in mind, let's dive into part two of this month's theme. And now... The Rex of 79 in Telehell. It's more than just a coincidence that we're calling this collection of programs The Rex of 79. Not just because a large chunk of the TV shows that premiered that year came and went in the blink of an eye, but also because one particular wreck may have been both literal and figurative. Case in point, the subject of our fourth episode several eternities ago. We already went to great lengths to describe the varying calamities involved not just with production, but also the overall reception of the show that nearly bankrupted NBC, Super Train. The network's attempt to take the already successful Love Boat format of guest star anthology stories and move it from the sea to the rails is worthy of being placed on the Mount Rushmore of television failures. And for good reasons. 
expensive set pieces, lackluster stories, and even lesser guest stars help the series reach the height of heights. 69th place out of the 114 TV shows that aired during the 1978-79 TV season. But while NBC was licking its wounds from that fiasco, another network had another idea. As we mentioned, the CBS network found itself in a unique position in 1979. In spite of having a fair share of top hits, the network suddenly found itself in a tug of war between the rising ABC network, who became the number one network thanks to some strategic programming put in place by our patron saint, Fred Silverman. CBS, a network known for having the highest quality shows for most of its existence, had a dilemma on its hands. Do they stay the course with the quality programming knowing that it's not what the kids are into these days? Or do they lower themselves to ABC's level for the sake of having higher ratings? Dear Mom and Dad, I'm fine. How are you? That doesn't count. And besides, don't answer that question just yet until we've met a pair of veteran producers, both of whom are an unsung part of Hollywood's golden era. First, an Australian-born writer named Ivan Goff. After spending part of the 1930s and 40s writing for various newspapers around the world, Goff found himself working at Warner Brothers Studios and clawing his way up the ranks by being a staff writer for a number of that studio's smaller pictures. Sometime after World War II, Goff met the man who had become his longtime writing partner, Ben Roberts. Roberts, whose early years include work in public relations and contributions to Broadway shows, would team up with Goff to help write the screenplays to movies that would define the waning years of Hollywood's so-called golden era including three movies with the legendary James Cagney, the most famous of which was 1949's White Heat. But when the golden age of Hollywood gave in to corporate consolidation of the 1960s, the duo of Goff and Roberts decided to pivot themselves into a medium that was outpacing the motion picture industry. In short, the two of them spent the rest of their careers becoming durable TV writers. After a few years of writing individual episodes of existing series, the duo truly struck gold when, in 1968, CBS greenlit a show that would turn out to be their meal ticket for the next eight seasons. Although created by Richard Levinson and William Link, and developed by Mission Impossible creator Bruce Geller, the series Mannix would prove to be beneficial for both Goff and Roberts, who would stay with the show as durable writers and producers for the bulk of its run. All good things do come to an end, though, and Mannix did exactly that in 1975. But with the success of the show under their belts, Goff and Roberts would, one year later, become the brains behind a set of beauties. My name is Charlie. Although they get credit for creating Charlie's Angels, Goff and Roberts left the show almost immediately after it premiered due to creative differences, but would later retain a chunk of the show's profits. Suffice to say, Goff and Roberts could have easily retired from showbiz after they gave the Angels their wings. But since we happen to be in a part of the afterlife where neither of those things exist, their story doesn't end there. After an unsuccessful attempt to turn sci-fi cult favorite Logan's Run into a series, 
Both Goff and Roberts had another idea in mind, and this one involved two pop culture icons. The first of which is this guy. I'm Vincent Price. You'll be just as safe in this house of fear as any of the other five victims murdered by the bat. I don't think it's necessary to go over how vast a resume the legendary Vincent Price had, but damn it, I'll try. Originally making his bones as a character actor, including a notable appearance in The Ten Commandments, Price would eventually pivot himself into movies that would truly define both his career and himself by becoming one of the many maestros of the horror genre. Some of his films were genuinely scary. At last you've got it all. Everything I have. Come with me, murderess. Come with me. While others were scary for completely different reasons. Yes, it's Vincent Price as that tongue-in-cheek terrorist, Dr. Goldwood. It's an exact reproduction and programmed for love and destruction. But regardless of what he appeared in, Price was frequently the highlight and the reason why people kept watching. But it was around the early 1970s when another pop cultural touchstone wound up capturing Price's attention. One day, while filming a movie, Price caught a glimpse of several episodes of Doctor Who on British television. Based on the given time frame of 1972 and 73, this was right around the time John Pertwee's reign as the Doctor was starting to end, one year before Tom Baker's reign would begin. But I digress. Price was so intrigued by the notion of traveling through time and space in order to fight for what's right and right humanity's wrongs that he felt compelled to want to make an Americanized version of the show. Unfortunately, rights issues and how expensive they would be would ultimately derail those plans. A more than apt term because in order for this bastardization of Doctor Who to be legally distinct from the real thing, some things had to change. If you remember our lesson last time on what it means to be legally distinct, you're way ahead of me. For you latecomers, say you want to do your own version of something popular, but you want to make it just different enough so that you don't get sued by the originators. All you gotta do is change a few things around, and no one will be the wiser. In the case of Messrs. Price, Goff, and Roberts, instead of our main characters being an interdimensional doctor and his traveling companion, why not make the two of them husband and wife? Most Doctor Who self-insert fanfiction seem to want to do that anyway, so fair trade. The traveling companion in this case would be played by Price's real-life wife, the actress Coral Brown, best known for a number of stage performances, British television shows, and being the wife of Vincent Price. The husband and wife duo would get to play husband and wife on this show, playing Jason and Margaret Winters, two people who, again, for legal distinction, don't travel across time and space to fight the wrongs of humanity, but give individual people a chance to relive parts of their lives in an effort to change theirs for all the better, all the while making sure that they don't do anything else to significantly alter the past. For, as we all know, If you ever travel back in time, don't step on anything, because even the tiniest change can alter the future in ways you can't imagine. Of course, the Doctor and his companion would have been nothing without the interdimensional travel device they would do their adventures with. The TARDIS, everybody's favorite floating police box that's a lot bigger on the inside. But again, because of legalities, a phone booth wasn't going to work in this version. Instead, 
Goff and Roberts had their own way of doing things. Wait, what? You can't be serious. You mean to tell me that in the year 1979, there would be not one, but two shows on television that featured high-tech, physics-defying choo-choo trains? Yeah, because it worked so well for the other network, didn't it? Of course, there was at least one other legal distinction to be seen here. Doctor Who traveled through time, space, and other dimensions. This show would be keeping things strictly to time travel. <sighs> and because this is a show about a train that can time travel, please indulge me and please be patient in getting the most obvious of references you could think of out of the way. Doc! Party! Doc! Doc! Party! It runs on speed! Your future hasn't been written yet! No one's has! Your future is whatever you make it! So make it a good one! Now that we've done that, for further legal distinction, this show needed additional characters to help run things. So now, let's meet the not-doctor and his not-companion special assistants, including an engineer for the not-tardis named Callahan, played by longtime character actor William Phipps. A time-traveling train can't run without the conductor's cry of, ALL ABOARD! That would come in the form of R.J. Walker, played by future Days of Our Lives mainstay James Reynolds. And of course, you can't board a time-traveling train without buying a ticket. Therein lies the job of the train's ticket clerk, played by a mainstay of various Irwin Allen productions, Woodrow Parfrey. One final legal distinction between this show and Doctor Who. The Doctor's adventures were largely episodic, with all the stories that took place leading up to a major payoff every time the Doctor regenerated itself into a different person slash a new actor was hired to replace him or her. This show, on the other hand, would follow a tried-and-true formula that many other shows, up to and including The Love Boat and Super Train, would follow for decades. That of the self-contained, anthology format of stories. The kind where even though there would be central players involved in each episode, they would really be taking a back seat in favor of that episode's special guest stars. I.e., the real reason people would tune into the show other than being in awe over the show's special effects. But now that we got all these similarities, differences, and distinctions out of the way, one other question remained. If people were already rejecting a show on another network that happened to involve a train that, by all accounts and purposes, defied every law of physics and science you could think of, why would anybody want to tune in to see a show with an arguably similar, yet different format on a different network? That's a very good question! We'll try to answer that, and a few other questions we have not yet thought of, as we step aboard the Time Express. After the break. On evenings like this, I like to curl up with a good book. The sort of book that lets the imagination run away with you. If you're like me and enjoy the mysterious and the unexpected, you'll love The Enchanted World. A fascinating new series from Time Life Books about the legends, myths, and folktales of ages past. 
These are the books that let you fly along with those unlucky spirits condemned to haunt the world of the living. You'll find yourself in a world where valiant warriors battle fearsome dragons and scaly creatures snatch away beautiful maidens. Each volume brings to life so vividly those inhabitants of the other world. Witches and wizards, ghosts, goblins, and avenging knights. Call now and enter the enchanted world with the first book, Wizards and Witches. My favorite subject. It's an intriguing account of sorcery, spells, and deception. Other books include ghosts, fairies, and elves, and dragons. Painstakingly researched by the editors of Time Life Books, each volume is exquisitely illustrated and portrayed with masterworks of art. Each volume is superbly written and bound in luxurious fabric. Only remember, once you're lured into the enchanted world, there's no telling where your imagination will take you. <laughs> This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. First number that came to mind was 1-800-MATTRESS. My family lives all over the country and all of us have used 1-800-MATTRESS. They deliver anywhere. The service was outstanding, the mattress is great, we're so happy. I went to mattress.com, did the research and I had my bed that same night. And it was 40% less than I would have paid any place else. There's a jingle, isn't there? 1-800-M-A-T-T-R-E-S now, for a limited time, Sealy Queen Pillow Top marked down to only $4.99. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of the damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Telehell Podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. April 26th, 1979. The radioactive steam from the Three Mile Island nuclear plant starts to dissipate. Jogging as a recreational hobby reaches a fever pitch thanks to the release of The Complete Book of Running. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, we're given a preview of what's to come in the following episode, which may seem a little redundant considering we're about to do the same thing in longer form, but this was a common practice in TV shows back in the day. Two people with an urgent need to return to the past. Once we get underway, there is no turning back. Sister, you just have to believe me. I can't explain the time change or how I got here. I don't even understand it myself. Get in, garbage man. Well, that explains everything. Yeah, right. Of course, scenes from an upcoming show won't be enough to suck people into the potential excitement that a show like this could bring. You need an eye-grabbing title sequence to do that. as eye-grabbing as possible on a budget consisting of a fog machine, lens flares, and stock footage, as we get a good look at the guest stars who appear in this program. For this first episode, that would include James MacArthur, best known for playing Dano in the original Hawaii Five-O, 
but even more important, a guest appearance by Jerry Stiller. Meaning that no matter how lame this show is going to be, at least I can use Seinfeld clips to help me get through this the same way Dr. Gregory House pops Vicodin to solve a medical mystery. Serenity now! Serenity now! <laughs> Act 1 begins with the first of our guest stars arriving at LA's Union Station train depot. There, we get to see Frank Costanza walking around like the big shot that he always wanted his son George to be. First thing in the morning, call Lord Salisbury in London. Ask him what's happened to our new super tanker. On second thought, call him right now. It's four o'clock in the morning in London. That's their problem. Maybe if the British got up earlier, they'd still own half the world. To think I almost split the profits on the man's ear with you. Bro! Man's ear! Bro! Man's Afterwards, Stiller approaches an area of the station marked Special Services. And after talking to the ticket man, he gets to find out just how special these services are. Cleveland, April 5th. 1969. That date is of some significance to you, sir? Yeah, that's the date, all right. Gate Y, track 13. 13's not in service. That's just to keep out the curious, sir. Oh, just then, Dano comes to the station and lather, rinse, repeat. St. Louis, August 7th, 1967. Look, this is a matter of life and death. I haven't any time for games. If this is some kind of publicity stunt, would you please tell me now? Oh, no, sir. It's no publicity stunt. I assure you. Gate Y, track 13. The two men head for the track. And one of the first things I'll give the show credit for is their use of building up atmosphere. And in doing so, you also get a sense of intrigue developing. Atmosphere and intrigue being the two things that Super Train would ultimately lack, because the show's producers thought that the expensive set pieces were the star of the show, instead of focusing on trying to tell a story. As both passengers get aboard the train, we now get to meet the master of the macabre and his wife, the actress Coral Brown. <laughs> my name is Jason Winters, and this is my lovely and talented wife, Margaret. It will be our pleasure to accompany you on your journey. However, before we leave, there is one thing you must know. The consequences could be disastrous! That's a risk you're gonna have to take! Your life depends on it! No! I refuse to accept the responsibility! Well, there's that. I mean, that's pretty much a given in all time travel-related media. Though Price does offer a few other caveats of the trip. In the course of your journey, events may change, people may change, you may change. But whatever happens, when the trip is over, you must return to the Time Express. Now, is that perfectly clear? Which is pretty valid. If you're stuck in a part of the past that you were sent to, you pretty much run the risk of altering the future by staying there. Unless, of course, you want to live your life as reclusively as possible, so that even the smallest interaction doesn't cause any butterfly effects. More importantly, it's critical to dress for the occasion that you're going to be visiting. In Jerry Stiller's case, it's a return to the 1960s, as well as the garments that he wore back in the day. Your clothes are in here. My clothes? Yes, what you were wearing back in 1969. Phew, you could have at least had them cleaned. Was it clean back then, Mr. Chernoff? <laughs> That's nothing. I hear things weren't much cleaner when he was a cook in the Korean War. Incheon, Korea, 1950. I can still hear the wretch <laughs> screaming. I sent 16 of my own men to the latrines that night. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dano's tokens of yesteryear seem to reveal a much more... 
personal mission in mind. How did this get here? We have our ways, sir. We like to make our passengers feel at home. So if there's anything you need, just ask. And for those wondering, Dano is holding a needlepoint piece of an embroidered flower and the words Forever Olivia etched on top of it. Clearly, this was either somebody he knew way back when, or James MacArthur had the foresight of knowing that Law & Order SVU would run forever once it eventually debuted two decades later. But his mission will have to wait, as we are now about to fire up the engines to the Time Express. You know, RJ, I've been thinking. Give me the old cab back, a couple of pressure gauges, a full head of steam, and this train ain't so different than the old Allegheny Flyer. And the newfangled instruments. The Allegheny Flyer now. I could land her in Chicago on a dime. Getting this, this monster back to 1969 was just a little bit trickier. Flyer's gone, Callahan. It went off the bridge and into the river a hundred years ago. And you and me with it. And now, it's time to play the internet's newest one-episode quiz show, What's More Plausible? As you just heard in that exchange, the Time Express's design is based on a train called the Allegheny Flyer. It is also revealed in that exchange that the Allegheny Flyer derailed in the 1800s and that our engineer and conductor was among its many victims. Which brings us to the question of... What's more plausible? Is it A... The engineer and conductor, and probably Vincent Price and his wife, are ghosts on this train? B. Years ago, the Time Express went back in time to rescue the engineer and conductor from their doom. C. This entire show is a coma fantasy in the mind of one of our actors. Or D. Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. The answer, of course, is... E. Nobody gives a shit because the show got canceled after four episodes. Though, for the record, I was rooting for A. I mean, a train piloted by ghosts, that's your show. As the train is in motion, Mr. and Mrs. Price go over the itinerary of our travelers, starting with Ben Stiller's father. Edward Chernoff. Chernoff Industries. Oh, yes, Mr. Chernoff, our friendly tycoon. It seems his trouble started in Cleveland, the morning of April the 5th, 1969. And what was he into then? Oil? Aircraft? No, darling. Something a little more down to earth. It's revealed that before Stiller's character became a millionaire, he made his living as a garbage man in Cleveland. Make up your own jokes about Cleveland and garbage here. Sullivan, that your trash over there? Why would I put my trash over there? Next thing they'll be putting it on a roof. You know, Sullivan, I keep having this dream. One day, Cleveland is buried under garbage, and I'm the only one who shows up for work. Just think of the overtime. The loser gets fired, the winner gets a water pick. One day, while making his rounds, Stiller comes across an unusual trash bag, one containing an undisclosed amount of money. With nobody watching, Act 2 begins with Stiller looting the loot, and coming home to his real-life wife and comedy partner, Ann Mira, totally unaware that Stiller has a fortune in his trash bag. Hey, what's in the bag? Oh, uh, something I picked up. 
Oh, more junk somebody threw away, huh? Honey, there's good junk and there's bad junk. Sure, sure, like those old soda bottles you got laying around the basement. You'll see. Someday they're going to be worth a lot of money. Yeah, I'd be careful about how you rib on Jerry Stiller and collectible items. Remember how apeshit he went when one of his TV guides went missing? It's a bouquet of paper from her TV guide. <laughs> That's my TV guide! Rip the shreds! She gave that to you! Hey, is that the Twilight Zone you're watching? Or when George sold all of his clothing. I sold your clothes yesterday. You sold my clothes? What do you mean you sold my clothes? <laughs> anyway, Stiller tries to hide the money that he found. Gloria? Yeah? Have you been watching much television today? No, about three or four hours. Anything unusual happened today on the news? Like, maybe somebody lost something? No, why? Just curious, honey. Thankfully, this aired in the 70s when things were still subtle. If something like this happened in this day and age, I almost guarantee that somebody would be live-streaming that they found an exorbitant amount of money, followed immediately by a live-stream of them getting robbed. Or worse, because they blabbed it in public. Fortunately, for the sake of sanity, Stiller hides the money in his basement and goes about his day by having a drink at his local bar. Sullivan, how long do you know me? 15 years. And would you say I'm an honest man? It's New Year's fall of Christmas. I'm gonna turn it in, Sullivan. Turn what in? A sack full of misery. Or at least that's the plan. But since time travel is involved, I think we can see where this is going. As we then see Mrs. Stiller enjoying a couple new toys. Gloria, you're not talking about a busted lamp. You're looking at two million bucks, and it belongs to someone. Daddy, look at this money as a gift. A gift? From him. His way of saying he loves the little man with a big dream. And the little woman, too. Do it. Okay, for legal purposes, as a representative of the underworld, I can't make any comments or jokes about the uh, opposition without express written consent from the boss because of some kind of balance in the universe rule that was set up a long time ago. So, in lieu of making a comment on that scene, Here's Jerry Stiller trying to say the words, Del Boca Vista. Are you telling me there's not one condo available in all of Del, Bo Del, Bo Del Boca Vista? That's right. In all of Del, Bo Del, Bo Del, Del Boca Vista? In all of Del Vista Bico? That's right. In all of Del Vista Bico? Ultimately, this leads to the reason why Stiller wants to return to that point in time so he can continue to live a happy life without regrets, even if it means living without an extra buck or two. We'll find out what happened to him in a moment as we take a look at Dano's reason for travel having to do with a woman that he married. The day that hospital can get by without my services for a couple of weeks, I'm going to take you on that honeymoon I promised. China, Tahiti, Europe, take your pick. Right now, I wouldn't trade being here for any other place. In other words... There's nothing I won't do with this long, long life of mine. For sure. That's what's great about being young. There's so much time to do great things. Only instead of accidentally cutting yourself in half with a machete, Dano's wife experiences the inability to walk while the legs are still intact. The news, unfortunately, is not good. Or is it? Leukemia of the bone cells. Judging from the slides, though, I'd say it's still in its early stages. Any idea how quickly it will spread? It doesn't have to spread at all. 
if we move fast. You mean a bone marrow transplant? It's remarkable how a transplant from a qualified donor can bring new life to the dying tissues. A qualified donor being a member of the same family. So, with an ace up the sleeve, there may be hope for Dano's wife. But how boring a story would that be? Let's put some drama in this dramatic licensing. We can't help her. Jim, unless Olivia gets a transplant from a blood relative, she's going to die. We understand, but... But what? Olivia isn't our real daughter. We adopted her when she was two. I honestly don't know whether to put in some generic womp-womp music or a clip of Maury Povich saying, You are not the father. Nor would I. Because in a moment like this, when a life is at stake, the last thing you need is to make light of the- Oh, who the here am I kidding? You are not! I mean, it's not like I'm gonna go further into hell for that. But in all seriousness, it looks like certain doom for Dano's wife if he can't find another matching donor. Fortunately, the foster parents happened to mention a brother ex-machina who came from the same orphanage that she did. Adoption records are confidential. I'm getting a court order, sister, but uh, I thought if you could get in touch with your orphanage in St. Louis, it would... St. Louis? Yes, it's where the children were adopted. When? Uh, 1956. Oh, Dr. Tolan, that, that orphanage in St. Louis burned to the ground in 1968. Okay, I think that just calls for a standard womp-womp. No need to belabor the point. Meanwhile, back at the Jerry Stiller story at the start of Act 3, he arrives in 1969 Cleveland. The Browns were five years past winning their last championship, Drew Carey was ten years old, and regional comedian Mike Polk Jr. wasn't around to make hastily assembled tourism videos because YouTube didn't exist yet. It could be worse though, at least we're not Detroit! We're, we're not, not Detroit. Detroit! But more importantly, Stiller would be able to clear his conscience and return to life as a normal trash man. After reliving the moment that he found the money, he goes to a nearby phone booth, calls the proper authorities, and then... You found out? Oh, you're darn right I found out. I saw you on the TV, all the reporters. The only thing missing was the smell. Honey, I know I did the right thing. Two million dollars, Eddie. But sweetheart, this way, if no one claims it in 90 days, it's ours legally. And even if someone does, we get the reward. Oh, enough to buy us a new refridge? Or a new TV? You kidding? There'll be 20 grand at least. Hmm, I don't know. I know Stiller and Mira were a very loving couple for all the years they were married, and this is just a TV show. But somehow I pictured this conversation happening a lot differently. I'll stop bothering everybody with that picture. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous? I'll show you ridiculous! <laughs> so, time passes. And sure enough, he gets the money anyway. And you would think this story has a happy ending. After all, this show did air at the 8pm time slot in 1979. People were still gung-ho about family viewing back then. I mean, it's not like somebody's gonna rob Arthur Spooner at gunpoint or anything. Mr. Chernoff, you don't know me. That's what they all say. What branch of the family are you from? A branch that controls gambling on the north side. The Durant family. And you've got something that belongs to us. Okay, technically that's not at gunpoint. You kind of have to wait until 9 or 10 p.m. for that, but naturally the money is given back without the need to break any legs. Get in. But where's Mr. Durant? Get in, Garth. 
garbage bin. Or so we think? You're kind of throwing us for a loop here, Shell. Why didn't you tell me? Did I ask you to tell me? Next you'll find out who the money really belongs to. I thought you said it belonged to the Durant family. As of now, me and the Durant family have parted company. I don't want to hear that either. Boss, look behind us. The Durant family. Step on it! Holy shit, you're making M. Night Shyamalan look bad with these twists, depending on the movie you're watching. At least tell me that Mr. Costanza gets out of this alive. Serenity now! Serenity now! <laughs> Thankfully, he does, as he jumps out of the car with the money, just in time for everybody else to tuntus themselves off a cliff. Tuntus, look out! <laughs> so Stiller gets the money back, puts it back in the bank, and surely this is the part where he and his wife live happily ever after, right? Don't tell me. You're Mr. Durant. That's right. And you've got something that belongs to me. It's your money, Mr. Chernoff, but it's giving me a nervous breakdown. You don't know what it's doing to me. So now the mob is out of their hair. Surely this is the end of the story. Well, Eddie, did you get the money? Yeah, I got Sullivan to open his bar. Come and get your money, but bring my wife with you or you get nothing. You know, I actually would be frustrated with this story and how they keep adding one twist on top of another, but... Damn it, I'm actually being entertained by this. And not just because of Jerry Stiller. Hoochie Mama! Hoochie Mama! <laughs> Act 4 picks things up where they left off. Stiller brings the money to the mob. The mob brings Stiller his Mira. And just when you think they were going to get away with it... Maybe I should make some introductions. That's Mr. Sullivan, who owns the place, and he has a reputation for running an orderly establishment. The others are my friends from the sanitation department. They're used to handling garbage. Mr. Durant, we'd appreciate it if you would take that sack of trouble and get out of here. I got a lot of problems with you people! Now, you're gonna hear about it! And as the trash picker mafia stands their ground, Ben Stiller's mother does a Texas switch with a bag of actual garbage. Which... Okay, I kinda get why she did it, if the first half of the show taught us anything. She wants the money more than he does. Thing is, she's clearly doing this in front of a relatively small room full of witnesses, including the mob. I mean, I'm all for dramatic licensing and everything, but this is Mr. Magoo levels of blindness not to notice that. Oh, Magoo, you done it again. Fortunately, for the sake of this being 100% pure fantasy, they never do find out. And sure enough... I'll get you a new refridge. Ah, we'll just eat out more. Maybe tonight in California. So concludes the lighter part of our stories. But what about Dano and his wife? Will she be cured? We find out as Dano arrives in 1967 St. Louis. Coincidentally, Vincent Price's place of birth, but off by about 50 plus years. But there is also one other part of this show that we neglected to cover until now. You will not be stepping into your past, but someone else's. Therefore, you'll be just as you are now. The head of the line thinks of everything. But he's been at it for a considerable number of years. They keep mentioning this mysterious figure known as the Head of the Line, an omnipotent being who determines who gets to travel on the train and for what purpose. 
Unfortunately, in the few episodes of this show that aired, we don't really get to know who this head of the lion is or what its true purpose is. Which I could say about Doctor Who, except I may be wrong about that. And that there's, again, 60 years worth of mythology to study versus the four episodes of this show that CBS saw fit to air. So, if there are any Whovians out there who think there might be a connection or a similarity between both shows and whoever the higher authority figure is between the two of them, please fill me in. And do it respectively. Don't just call me an idiot, tell me why I'm an idiot. And show your work, neatness counts. Anyway, Dano books it to the orphanage where his wife's brother was adopted, hoping to find some answers. I realize it could mean saving his sister's life, and I really would like to help. But there is the law to consider. Perhaps if you had a court order. I do. Oh, may I see it? Only it's from California. Is this some sort of hoax, Doctor? Because it's dated 1979. No, it's not a hoax, sister. Olivia is now 23 years old. That's impossible. But it is possible. And I know because... because she's my wife. Okay. Okay. What? Do you have any idea what you just did? Not only with that piece of dialogue, but with a plot hole you could drive an oil tanker through. Don't you know how time travel works? Time travel. The kind of time travel that you're thinking of is a scientific impossibility. It would violate the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, but what about a wormhole? Oh! Well, I was watching Nova and Alan Alda seemed to think... Oh, well then, Alan Alda, he's the expert. Okay, disregarding the Emmy-winning actor's debunking, you've got to suspend the disbelief because this is still a work of fantasy. Fantasy has its own set of rules not grounded in reality. In just about every time travel tale known to mankind, there's always the warning not to alter the past in ways that can affect the future. Hell, the Jerry Stiller story proves the point without the time paradox. Whether or not he keeps the money, or turns it in, or gets chased by the mob, he's still going to wind up with the money, almost as though it was destined to happen. Here, you're traveling not just to a time where you haven't even met your dying wife yet, but you tell a nun, a fucking nun, that these are things that will happen in a future that either won't be written yet or is about to become the victim of a time paradox. So unless the same destiny rules will apply here, you just fucked up the future, Dano, and I'd love to see how exactly you get out of this. Sister, you just have to believe me. I can't explain the time change or how I got here. I don't even understand it myself. But you're a woman of faith. Won't you put a little faith in me? You ask too much. Sister. I'm afraid I've run out of time. Well, that's one way of handling that, and pretty level-headed, too. Frankly, if altering time was a factor here, I would have gone with a slightly different approach. Get out, and don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. So, with seven minutes left to go in the show, it seems all is hopeless. That is, until another Ex Machina conveniently and divinely pops up. The file was on Sister Bertelli's desk for a moment. I opened it and saw the parent's name. John and Mary Clayton, Phoenix, Arizona. <sighs> Sister, I, I can't thank you enough. Why did you believe me? 
We are taught to believe in miracles, Doctor. I believe you're from the future, and surely that is a miracle. And once again, as a representative of the underworld, I'm unqualified to comment on the notion that nuns believe in time travel as a sign of faith. A sentence I never thought I'd have to say out loud in public. So now, as an equal time non sequitur, here's a young Rita Wilson telling her future husband about worshiping our boss on an episode of Bosom Buddies. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. You're a you're a you're a daughter of Satan. Sure, you're shocked now, but believe me, in time you'll see it my way. <laughs> now that we got that out of our way, Dano knows the names of his wife's birth parents, and hopefully. It's not too late. But time is important. I have to talk to him now, in the present. Yes, of course. And in your particular situation, the head of the line has authorized me to make an unscheduled stop. Phoenix, Arizona. Time today. Well, we have been talking about deus ex machinas so much that we almost forgot that the train they're on is literally a machine that performs acts of you-know-who, and that the machine takes us to present-day Phoenix, Arizona, where Dano tries to book a surgery for his wife, on the condition that her brother is even willing to take part in it. And of course, he's going to be stubborn about it because this brother is played by none other than John Delancey, a.k.a. Q from the Star Trek franchise. You want me to go back to the Los Angeles Medical Center with you and undergo a bone marrow transplant for somebody I don't even know? Till you walked into this office, Doctor, this sister of mine was a total stranger to me. John, you're her only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. No, no, wrong franchise! It's bad enough I'm walking a tightrope with limited Doctor Who knowledge. Please don't make me co-mingle between Star Wars and Star Trek. Anyway, just as it seems he's willing to take chances, along comes one more twist. John? Anne. I'm sorry, I, I thought you were alone. Oh, that's all right. What'd the doctor say? He said to take good care of you. You're going to be a father. Well, you see, doctor, you have your responsibilities and I have mine. Believe me, I, I sympathize, I understand. But I just can't do what you ask. In any case, I'll be watching. And if you're very lucky, I'll drop by to say hello from time to time. Well, to put that downer in perspective, I think Vincent Price's wife, the actress Coral Brown, <laughs> might have the right words. You try to understand, Dr. Toland. The Claytons have been wanting a child ever since they were married. Mr. Clayton simply felt that he had too much to lose. You did the best you could. Is that what I tell my wife? I asked for a way to put the downer into perspective, not make things worse. Quick, give me some comic relief from the mench on a bench. Oh, no, Mr. Turner. Make a note, Niles. Remember that kid's hospital in Clayton? Yes, sir. We sent him $5,000. Well, send him $2 million more. Oh. With a note. From Gloria and Eddie Chernoff. Yeah. He made it the hard way. Meanwhile, it looks like Dano's wife is about to get booked for a hearse. What is a Dan to do? John, it just didn't seem right. Bringing one life into the world and... and letting another one go. Must it always have galactic import? Universal stakes, celestial upheaval. 
Isn't one life enough? Of course she'll be fine. This is the first episode of an anthology show. You don't do the dark stuff until the audience is well established. So, all's well that ends well as the Time Express zooms into parts unknown. And we get a preview of our next trip. On Time Express, a man pursues an impossible dream. A woman pursues an improbable love. Two people with an urgent need to return to the past. So tell me, are you a skilled and experienced lover? What? How did it ever happen? I don't know. Paul is a man, and I'm a woman. Or didn't he bother to mention that? Will the past change their lives, do you think? If they're lucky, they So that was Time Express, a show that, by all accounts and purposes, was certainly more entertaining than even the best episode of Super Train. And yet, it only lasted four episodes. Which brings us back to the original question. If people were already rejecting a show on another network that happened to involve a train that defied every law of physics and science you could think of, why would anybody want to tune in to see a show with an arguably similar yet different format on a different network? Unfortunately, the reason why this train headed for the junk heap was an all too simple one. Its competition just happened to be shows that were ranked number three and number five among all the shows that season, both of which hailed from the Gary Marshall and Miller Boyette monolith. Anyone who was going to go up against the one-two punch of Mork and Mindy at 8 p.m. and Angie at 8.30 on a Thursday night had about as much probability of success as brokering world peace. They were that unstoppable, and Time Express never stood a chance. Of course, that wasn't the only problem the show had, as we now derail this train ourselves in our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. The key difference between Super Train and Time Express is the simple fact that this show was more based in fantasy than the show that got all the attention while this aired. Which, as a reminder, only got all the attention because of how expensive the show was to make at the time, as well as how much of a morbid curiosity it was to watch. And because Time Express was based in fantasy, that made what I saw all the more entertaining to watch. Yes, you heard me. I actually liked this show and I wish it went on for more than four episodes. Unfortunately, I have to do my job. So, to play boss's advocate for a second, we remind you that Super Train was actually in development for a number of years before it would eventually make its debut. Then again, who's to say how long the official development process this show had from the moment Vincent Price thought of Americanizing Doctor Who to the point where the show would eventually debut? Until we know for sure, we have to conditionally penalize the show for ripping off not one, but three existing TV shows in theory only. Super Train with its train, The Love Boat with its anthology-style storytelling, and Doctor Who with its wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey stuff. Yes, the show was good in the most stark comparisons to Super Train, but fraud still fraud. And all the legally distinct changes from Doctor Who that were made sparks a bit of heresy. Of course, that's just the show on the whole. When what we saw comes into play, particularly Jerry Stiller's story involving the money that he found, he wanted to give it back. But Mrs. Stiller, in both versions of the story, wanted to experience the high life. So we gotta give it a dash of greed. 
That same kind of high life almost cost Stiller his own life thanks to the mob chasing after him in that shootout car chase. So we gotta give it some collateral violence. As for Dano's plot, Look, I've already made my bones clear as to how he almost upended the time-space continuum thanks to what he said to the nun, so I think he's been punished enough. Although I will say, that one line did make me feel more wrath towards the people who wrote this particular episode. I'm not saying there are set rules as to how time travel is supposed to work in fiction, but if the majority of them say not to create time paradoxes, the least you can do is follow those rules. Isn't that right, Doc Brown? What? <laughs> Right, it's still 1979. That hasn't happened yet. Time Express earns five out of nine circles of telehell. But I can't stress enough just how entertaining this show was, even if Vincent Price wasn't involved. If this show took place at a completely different point in time, either before or after Super Train was even a thought, this show might have had the potential to become something great, give or take bending the rules of time and space. Or as long as this show tinkered with an already existing product in Doctor Who, why not tinker a little bit more? For starters, 1979 clearly had its fill of trains. So let's just get rid of those and just focus on somebody who can time travel at different points of history, setting things right in the past, and sooner or later, the guy gets to go home after a while. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Oh boy. Well, thankfully, viewers would only have to wait another decade for that to happen, give or take the, as of press time, current reboot show. Because unfortunately, we're still stuck in 1979. And for the last thing we'll be covering this month, we've already had equal doses of reality and fantasy. Now, we gotta find a happy medium in between. Next time on Telehell, the Rex of 79 concludes with something freaky that coincidentally aired on Friday nights that year. On Turnabout, a little magic made Penny and Sam switch bodies. I am in your body and you're in mine. I think I may die. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us, all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. Mm-hmm.